love in a pandemic. Will it come like a change in the weather? Will its greeting be courteous or rough? Will it alter my life altogether? Oh, tell me the truth about love. W. H. Auden wrote that. It sort of sits alone in his work, like it's looking out to sea, or it's in a deserted cafe trying to be a little Noel coward. But knowing Auden, as many have and have reported, the sheer surprise, the humiliation, the doubt, the panic even of falling for that person is all there is. It's unexpected, that's what it is. Sounds like a song. People I love, friends, colleagues, family, are all navigating these odd days, these suspended yet uncoiled days. It's mid-November 2020, by the way, so I'm getting down with the time specifics here. I expected to retreat a bit, to overtext, understand people more, or at least try to. I expected some of my good friends to panic, not panic by, you understand, but panic. I expected to feel different about spring in the park, spring on my balcony. And was that really summer that we saw through different eyes and felt through different skin? Did we lose a central grasp on the strangeness of it all, the helplessness of the charities, the ugly hatred born from, well, inexcusable really, so let's not born anything from anything. No human should drown. Yet how could anything survive in all of this if not for love? But falling in love? Now? Like many, I've dipped a toe in the dating apps. Oh, yeah. It's fun if it's fun you need. It's friendly of sorts, but it's mostly a, a flashing light-up takeaway board or a delivery menu version of good old-fashioned attraction. Of course, I panicked. There's a pandemic on, if you haven't noticed. You make a decision to see someone, then there's a whole new dance these days. And it's beyond sanitization, really. You want this too, do you? Do you? Can we? Should we? Ah, it's too late, and it was you who did all the work. I just tried to keep it light and make it feel real. And then I panicked. And I laid out some rules. You panicked and said, no, I can't do these rules. They're not my rules. These are your rules. Full respect, I said. Then my best friend said, uh-uh, he'll be back. No, he won't, I said. I'm a fucking nightmare. No, you're not, my friend said. But you did return. We had no idea how to play. Nobody did back then, and look at us all now. I saw an article about love during lockdown. I thought, how ridiculous, but how beautiful. The park at night. You played football. You brought food. I panicked a bit more. You love breakfast. We had breakfast. Then I took you home to the seaside, and there we found our place. I said, I have no secrets. You said, you have. You have a few. We found music, trees, dogs, water. 
shared thoughts, food from your country, your knowledge. You showed me your brothers, the 1,500-mile walk into the Atlas Mountains, Aretha sang for Carol King and the Obamas. We watched it. It filled you with new wonder. We drank tea at Asseline, Piccadilly, and I bought you Welsh honey. It's unexpected, that's what it is. What it was. And I hope there's more, so long may it be unexpected. How can anything be like this when when you spend so many years so far from any of this? I walk you halfway home, at the entrance to Archbishop's Park, where you hear the chug, chug, chug of the river and the warm clatter of the trains firing out to Kent and the home counties. I had my joggers on, a cockeyed concept right there. My house keys must have fallen out on the grass. Thankfully, my neighbour was home. I'd lost my keys, but I'd kept my door open. Why was my door open? But I'd also lost myself in your arms, in your dark eyes, those eyes that become honey when they see the sun. I threw my hands in the air, said, show me something. You said, if you dare, come a little closer. And I did. Emerus Presley I sometimes wonder about all the jobs I could have shined at. Now I'm older and wider. Wide men say only fools gingerly navigate the entrance to any situation involving a cluttered arrival. I often do that thing when I'm in nice cafes. Mm, wouldn't mind running a cafe, get a piano in. Live the life, the bohemian life, line the walls with books. The cafe cat, the lock-ins, the poetry readings. All romantic, really. My friend Jilly had a cafe in Burgess Park, near the old Kent Road. So much work. She made a lot of locals very happy with jazz on Sunday's events, poetry readings, special dinners. Then there was the books, not the ones that artfully lined walls. Oh no, accounts, buying stuff wholesale, food, health and safety, the local council. All a bit ungiggy, really. I had a paper round. There were two rival news agents in Flint, that's spelt with two Fs, North Wales. There was Godfrey's, presided over by the genial and very fair Vic Godfrey. And there was Bertie Lambs, presided over by a white-haired, blue-lipped, red-faced, genteel old Welsh boy, who I think worked at Shotton Steelworks at some point. That's where my dad was. Anyway, Vic Godfrey, from Godfrey's, was named Vic, like my dad. Godfrey, as in Godfrey. 5am on my bike, up with my dad who was on six till two at the steelworks. For years I imagined his tootle ten shift was somehow connected to the cornet he played in the Flint Town Silver Prize Band. Tootle, you see, tootle ten. Mm -hmm. 
The door of my bedroom gently pushed open. Come on, lad, paper round. Hasty breakfast of one slice of fried bread with red sauce, daddy's, and it was only his, and he was my daddy. Mum's cooked breakfast was unsullied by ketchup of any colour. Out into the freezing dark blue morning, slicing through the still slumbering streets of this small Welsh town on my rally. My cousin Michael had a chopper, and he was dead at seventeen. Car crash. I've no idea where the chopper went, but I know he would have liked me to have it. But at thirteen, you sometimes don't say stuff. The long, narrow newsagent was nauseatingly neon bright. Vic Godfrey winked at me and asked me how the piano lessons were going. His wife was what we North Walians used to call proper Welsh. And that's to say they probably came from Aberystwyth or Crickieth or somewhere else with a castle and, frankly, too many consonants. I lasted about a year, mostly frantic that Mrs. Owen's Woman's Weekly wasn't tucked into the Daily Express where it should have been. I was convinced that my deliveries went through wrong doors. Free gifts cascaded out of comics. Football weeklies were dropped in puddles. Not the job for me. Changing the sheets at Pontin's holiday camp? No, no, no. My little gigs were going quite well. Dad, he'd secured a Krumar Roadrunner keyboard, touch insensitive, but all the bits and pieces came with it, and it did the job. Down the King's Arms on a Friday night, just under the railway station, the whole family came out. I learned Billy Joel, David Bowie, Elton John, and bizarrely the songs of the First and Second World War. Mother dear, I'm writing to you somewhere in France, hoping this finds you well. Auntie Shirley sang the blues, Uncle Bill did Mavanui, which of course on paper looks exactly like my fanny. When my keyboards were augmented to include the Stringvox machine by Hona, swell pedal, clavichord, harpsichord, all the gubbins, and the fucking Liverpool Philharmonic, as my fobsy fingers picked out these chunky chords, I was on the barley wine by fifteen. The Piccadilly, or the Pick, as it was known, was in Kairuis, Kairuis, how the locals said it, and I shone there. Mum had bought me the soundtrack to Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross as Billie Holiday. I learnt them all. Tain't nobody's business if I do. I fell in love with you first time I looked into them their eyes. And the achingly beautiful strange fruit. It was becoming quite an unusual show Friday nights for me. I'd warm them up with Pinball Wizard, Nielsen's Without You, Life on Mars... Then I'd be copying Diana Ross, copying Billie Holiday, singing of lipstick on shirts, pigfoot's bottles of beer, and bodies swaying in the southern breeze. I didn't understand that at all. I was dungareed, this odd Welsh boy, all flushed cheeks and false modesty, as my entire family of uncles, aunts, cousins cheered and roared in the little Welsh pubs of my early teens. Ian, lad... There's no main turn. Emrys Presley, yeah, he's had a bump and he's on the A55 waiting for the RAC. I was at the Bagelt British Legion Club. Bagelt is Bagelt. Everybody called it Bagelt because we weren't very Welsh in North Wales. And I was solo. 
The cabaret turns with their glossy 10 by 8 black and whites pinned up in the band room would be mostly over from Liverpool or Birkenhead or Chester or Manchester. Seasoned pros, summer season, bargain basement, Engelberts, Shirley's and Emrys Presley. He hated me on sight and my dad hated him. A man incapable of hate, that was my dad. But that Emrys Presley... If he so much as gives you the look again, just shift the keys up a few notches. That'll knock the shit out of him. Suspicious Minds was his big number, and we did it one night. He asked me not to speed up, you little bastard, and to give him plenty of backing, whatever that meant, at the climax of Wise Men Say. It's actually called I Can't Help Falling In Love With You, Emrys, Mr. Presley. I sensed his Anglesey irk. He snarled at me. And I upped that tune by a fourth. Just enough to give him a bloody hernia when he gets to the last few notes. Dad was thrilled. He stood at the bar, pints of bitter in one hand, roll up in the other, grinning like a Cheshire cat, knowing that nobody would make his clever lad look a dick in front of the whole village. Emrys, he knew. As soon as he got to, like a river flows, slowly to the sea... That end bit would be no breeze for him, but a gushing, storm-swollen river that gloriously would burst its banks and a few of his veins. Emrys Presley was furious. I was never booked again. I hid in the gents' toilets, and I heard my dad come in with Uncle Cliff. Ah, sod him. Jumped up second-rate turn. My lad's got more talent in his little finger. You just wait. We did wait. Dad finally paid off the loan for the keyboards. I got my place at King's College, University of London, and I didn't sing for a whole year, least of all play. I told my dad I did, though, and he seemed pleased. Sister Mary from Chicago. Chicago O'Hare International Airport, November. I sausaged myself into my seat with the requisite book, bottle and CD player, with my favourites packed tightly into one of those pleasing, chunky CD wallets. Time's past, eh? And often I'd leave the whole bloody thing in the pouch with all the laminates and the sick bag. I was window, and I was doing that thing, you know, please, not you, not you, maybe, maybe you, no, not you, God, no, not you. And what can only be described as a flustered nun became my eventual flight body. She was tiny, and she gently placed herself in her seat next to me. After a while. Hello, I'm Sister Mary. I'm flying back to London to see my son, Peter. Oh, hi, I'm Ian. Uh, I'm a musician and I'm flying back to my partner. Oh, you're gay too. Cool, I thought. A gay nun. No, she didn't mean that. I thought that would be ideal. Cosy, even. But it was Peter who was gay. Her son. 
Sister Mary had worked stuff out from the word partner, I guess. And Peter was very sick, but he was doing very well at the moment. The trappings of a medium to long haul flight came at us like small theatre, and Sister Mary was a belter. She was an absolute joy. Irish parents, and she'd followed the hippie trail. She said, Oh yes, I was right there in 67. Flower power. I loved it. We talked and talked and talked. Books, music, aeroplanes, flights, cities, vows of celibacy, travel in general. And I asked her about prayer. And she said, it's more contemplation these days. She was genuinely interested in what I did. I was touring with the great Cedar Walton, jazz pianist, and we'd done an album in New York, and we'd been in Chicago, obviously. I loved that man and his amazing wife, Martha. I miss him. And Sister Mary had heard of Art Blakey. Art Blakey! Art Blakey! She played around with the name. Just the name. Those jazzers, they know how to modify their names. She struggled with those tiny little packets of nuts, peanuts, but she wouldn't let me help. Tiny nuts eventually everywhere, and she then fell asleep, and it started on my shoulder. Then it became a slow, almost unnoticeable descent into my, well, groin, and the urge to cradle her head was only halted by a disturbed dream we wrote letters for ten years. We said goodbye at the carousel. I think it was Heathrow. It could have been Gatwick. I can't remember. And we wrote letters for ten years. Not not every week, not every month, but certainly three or four a year. Ten years of my sending her CDs, books, funny little cards. She said that Peter had died from complications, from AIDS. And she asked me to pray for him, and I got another letter with a very badly photocopied picture of Sister Mary at what looked like a ceremony, and there was Peter at her side, the nun with her son. How sort of peculiar in a way, but then again not, because I'd met her, and her letters were so vivid and so full of love and life and, dare I say it, light. The letters stopped. I can only imagine she died. But I had no real way of finding out where she was or who her family were. And sometimes, when I'm on a plane, I remember Sister Mary. Her cheeky, most unpious face. I remember her genuine curiosity. The pain of losing a child, which my own parents have felt. But most of all, I chuckle, and I remember how completely unmoved she was when she woke up in my groin, beautifully and elegantly relaxed. She said, Oh, I've been dreaming. Dreaming's good, you know. And I wonder what she was dreaming of. I'll never know. I like to think it was Peter, her son. <laughs> 